Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your hosts, Dr. Dana Fang and myself, Dr. Elise Putt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Welcome, Distinguished Laureate Professor Nicholas Talley. Thank you for joining me on Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you have achieved a lot in your career, and I think this is going to be a big ask, but I'm going to try anyway. Do you think you could <laughs> summarize briefly for me a bit about yourself in a couple sentences? Well, that's a very hard thing to do. That's one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked. So I'm a doctor, I'm a physician, and obviously I've spent my life doing my utmost to contribute to medicine, to look after patients, to do research, and to educate the next generation. But I've also got a family. I enjoy sports. I love to read. I love history. And I live on a small farm just outside of Newcastle with a number of horses, all of whom are completely useless, <laughs> and three dogs. So there we go. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you. And so let's start from the beginning. You mentioned first and foremost your doctor. So what led you to a career in medicine? And more importantly, also, what inspired you to eventually become a neurogastroenterologist? I'll start with medicine. I think it was probably in my year 11 at school that I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Before that, I had lots of ideas about lots of other careers that would interest me. But it was probably year 11, I suddenly decided, actually, I want to mix science and also, if you like, the arts in a way that would contribute to society. And I felt medicine was the most obvious path that would allow me to do that because I was fascinated by science, but I also liked to write, I liked to read, I liked the arts. So it was that mix that I wanted to keep in my career. And to the best I can, I've tried to keep doing that over my career. So that was medicine. <clears throat> my father was a doctor and my grandfather was a doctor. So some people would say, it's because your father was a doctor. Well, actually, if anything, that turned me completely off the idea. Uh, he worked very hard, too hard, I think. And, you know, he was a great role model in many ways, but I don't think one would have said it was an attractive career watching my father in action. I think it was more my own personal decision. And for some reason, it's something that I've been very happy in, despite the pressures, despite the difficulties you always have with a career as a professional and in medicine. But I'm very glad I did it. As for neurogastroenterology, that was a complete accident. In fact, gastroenterology was a complete accident. So I only really decided to do gastroenterology late on in my basic physician training. And I think it was because I really liked the gastroenterology terms that I did. I liked the fact that gastroenterology covered a wide gamut of different problems. It included younger people and older people. You could cure some people. That was really nice, or at least fix them. And that was very attractive because my other alternative was neurology. But when I did my neurology term, I realized actually 
nobody got better or nobody got really better. And so that was, to me, somewhat frustrating. So I decided I'd do gastroenterology. Now, my father was a gastroenterologist too, so that was another reason not to do this. But of all the the subspecialties in internal medicine, gastroenterology for me was the most attractive. Plus, at the time, procedures were coming in. It was the time of the beginning of endoscopy in Australia in a big way. So it was attractive too that you could actually look and intervene even potentially. And that was a very attractive addition to the specialty, which I think still is the case to this day. And as for neurogastroenterology, well, you know, I initially trained with Professor Douglas Piper and we were going to do some work in peptic ulcer disease But then we ended up working in functional gut disorders in the end because that ended up being the project that looked the most interesting. And so in a sense, that's how I drifted into this area. And then when I went to Mayo Clinic, I did a motility fellowship there, a GI motility fellowship. That was the world center of this at the time. And that, I guess, was the end of anything else. And I ended up a neurogastroenterologist. Yes. (laughs) Fair enough. And so, Prof. Tally, you are very much well known for your textbook. I read it when I'm through medical school. I don't know of anyone else who hasn't read your textbook or textbooks. And I was just wondering, how did you go from becoming a neurogastroenterologist and then becoming a textbook writer for one of the most prolific textbooks of all time in Australian medicine? It was a little bit of an accident too, like many things, a little bit of serendipity to be honest. The story goes along these lines. As you may well know, to become a specialist physician, you need to sit the exams in the middle of your training. So after basic physician training, you have an exam, a barrier exam, and then you go on to advanced training. I remember very well the torture of preparing for and sitting the basic physician's exam, which was the only exam you had to really pass. There was no other barrier. And in the days I sat, which is some time ago now, it has changed. In the days I sat, most people failed and many people failed multiple times and some people never got through. So it was a really daunting experience, a very difficult exam. And there wasn't much guidance or information out there about the exam. But the good thing about the training is you were really well trained in clinical skills and physical examination and other skills, which you really had to have mastered to pass the exam. Soon after I passed the exam, I had a party at my little apartment and I had my friends over who passed and others as well. And Simon O'Connor happened to be at the party as a friend of mine. And I said to Simon, and I think I'd had a few drinks actually, but don't tell anybody. I said to Simon, look, I've got all these notes, all these cards, all these systems, all these approaches. I think they'd be worth putting together as a textbook. What do you think? And he said, well, yes, I have some notes as well. And yes, there isn't any textbook. And I said, look, I think we should just write a textbook. And he said, yes. Now, He said yes immediately, clearly had no idea what he was saying yes to, obviously. So the next day, the very next day, I sat down at my desk and I started to pull together 
what I thought would be the outline of what became examination medicine. This was the textbook aimed at the registrars, and but also the medical students like this. So anyway, so we wrote this book. And then I remember we finished it. It took us a year yeah. to write it. And we even had cartoons in that version, cartoons, which we took out later. But in the first edition, there are cartoons as well as jokes, as well as, of course, serious text about how to approach the exam and how to examine in a systematic way. Okay. So then we went to the publishers. I was naive. I thought, well, you just go to the publisher and see what happens. It's only years later I found out most people who go to publishers never, ever get published, at least in those days. I mean, usually you got rejected. But anyway, I went to a number of publishers, two actually, and both of them agreed they'd like to publish it. It was quite remarkable. We sent them the manuscript. Both agreed they wanted to publish it. And we went with the local publisher rather than the big multinational publisher in Australia, McLennan and Petty. So that was Examination Medicine. And, you know, that got published in 1985 for the first edition. So it was about two years after the time I'd sat the exam. And I thought that was the end of my book writing career, actually. I thought there'd never be another textbook. That was it. And I thought no one would buy it. Maybe one or two people and my father might buy it. That would be it. That would be the entire sales of that textbook. I was wrong. It did quite well. And in fact, lots of people bought it and lots of people thought it was good. It got good reviews in some of the journals. It was remarkable. I remember then Simon and I were both at Royal North Shore Hospital doing our advanced physician training. Simon in cardiology, I was in gastroenterology. And I said to Simon, we talked about it together, and we said, we should write another book, this time aimed at medical students, because the textbooks are terrible. They're all really not very good. And I remember the textbooks I studied in medical school for clinical skills. And at that time, they really were not very good. They really were fairly ordinary or worse. So, yeah, so we decided to go and uh, write another textbook. The publisher was interested because we'd had good sales for the first book and thought it was a bigger market. And I guess we spent a year at North Shore writing this and then got published. And that has done remarkably well. And now we're actually doing our 10th edition at the moment. We're just about to start our 10th edition of both books. Congratulations on that. And I hope you're very proud of this work because it is really honestly like the Bible for medical students across Australia, speaking from experience as someone who studied it. And also, I just find it interesting how maybe perhaps your father did write a textbook or attempted one before, but how you came to that idea sprung to mind. And it I don't know if when you were a medical student, if someone told you, oh, yeah, 10 years from now or less than that, you're going to publish a textbook, what you would think of that and how, you know, you even started the process if at that time there was anyone for you to follow the footsteps of or give you guidance around how to even write a textbook? I think I was lucky because, again, when I was at North Shore doing research as well as advanced gastro training, and my mentor then, Professor Doug Piper, was a very well-known gastroenterologist, and he'd written a number of very good gastroenterology textbooks for medical students and others, nurses as well. And they were good. They were clear. They made complex topics, simple and straightforward, well-written. And I thought, 
that was something to emulate. So that was a little bit of the background that helped me, I think, about it. But I do remember as a medical student, senior medical student, thinking, gosh, these textbooks are terrible. Surely someone could write a better textbook than this. And I remember thinking, but I I can't write a textbook about this. I don't know enough. I can't do that. But I also remember I talked to my father about examination medicine early in the piece, or perhaps late in the piece, actually, perhaps when it was nearly finished. He thought I was crazy. I remember that. He thought it was a bit of a wild idea and probably wouldn't go anywhere. And I said, Dad, if that's the case, then I've just wasted my time. But I've certainly learned quite a lot doing it anyway, so I don't care. (laughs) I remember it to this day really well. Well, it certainly isn't a waste of your time, and I'm sure your dad is eating his hat now. I think he was, in the end, he was very proud of what happened. But, you know, it was a little bit brash. I think that's probably the summary. It was pretty brash. (laughs) But when you're young, you can be like that. Yeah. Yep. And so other aspects of your career, you are an academic clinician you and researchers. You alluded to that work that you did at Mayo Clinic and with Prof Piper. Can you tell us a bit more about your work in that sure. field and also whether you fell into it or it was something that you deliberately chose and planned out? Yeah. So I, I was very keen to learn research. I felt Becoming a clinician researcher was what I saw as my future when I started out in advanced training. And I was very lucky to work with Doug Piper and other colleagues at North Shore because, in fact, I got very good clinical research training and learned some of the ropes there. And when I was at Mayo Clinic, I learned more as well about not only clinical research, but more applied translational research. So it was a really good training experience. I did a PhD at the same time as doing advanced gastro training, which was permitted in those days. I did both together. took me four years to do both, but it worked out as a nice combination over that four-year period. And the reason I got a post at Mayo Clinic was because of the papers that I wrote while I was at Royal North Shore. So that's how I was able to secure that. But I fell into the area of my research almost again serendipitously, because we didn't get funding for our peptic ulcer research project, but we did get some funding early on to look at another problem, which was unexplained upper abdominal symptoms, basically a very common problem in the community and an issue that I knew little about at the start, although I do remember my girlfriend at the time had the problem, had exactly that. She had these unexplained dyspeptic symptoms, quite severe and distressing. So I remember it well and thinking, I don't know what's wrong with you because she'd had normal investigations and people thought maybe it's stress related. And that was the mantra of the time. And we now know that in fact, people with these conditions actually have disturbances of their small intestine in terms of low-grade inflammation, increased permeability, alterations of the microbiome, immune activation, and indeed there's a very clear-cut syndrome that these people or some of these people, a number of these people will have. So my work has branched out from traditional motility research into the microbiome, into inflammation, into immune activation, and it's been very exciting because that's a cutting-edge field, and that's what I'm doing at the moment in terms of my research, looking at alterations in bacteria in particular, 
trying to identify bacteria that may actually be causing disease, not just associated with disease, isolating those bacteria, testing them in animal models, and then following on with work to see whether if we treat human beings, whether we make a difference. So that's the research I'm doing at the moment, and that's where it's all landed. That's really exciting, and I can't wait to see what comes out of that because I'm sure that will really shape how we treat so many of these patients with abdominal pain that's with unknown cause, so very much needed. Well, I mean, it was very striking. I was there in the early days when H. pylori, Helicobacter pylori, was discovered. So Barry Marshall, who I know very well, and Robin Warren made their observations. And I remember Barry Marshall's first presentation to the Gastro Society, actually, about his results, which was very controversial. But it really opened the door to organisms being important in chronic disease and chronic diseases. And I think that work was very important in helping us to think about that for other diseases as well. And so there are also a lot of other roles you play, you know, being emeritus editor-in-chief for Medical Journal Australia and you teach. Did that all just unfold? Was it like a domino effect where one thing followed by another, one door led to another door opening for you? Or was this something that you actively pursued with all these other roles that you're currently taking on? Well, I'll talk about medical editing first because I think that's an exciting role and it's something that is very worthwhile and very important. Yes, look, once you've started to publish papers and once you've started to act as a reviewer for journals, the next logical step in um, understanding the publishing process is to become an editor or an assistant editor or an associate editor of a journal to begin with and then eventually perhaps run a journal as the editor-in-chief. And I guess, in a sense, I fell into this again a little bit, although opportunities came along my way because people knew about the work that we'd been doing, and that led to invitations to do more in those areas. And, of course, editing a journal is hard work, but it's also very rewarding. You learn an awful lot about the field you're acting as an editor in, You get to see the research early and you get to learn about it early. You get to see what the experts think and are doing, even before it's all published in full. And it's a privilege to be a journal editor. And I've been lucky enough to do that for the Medical Journal of Australia and some other journals prior to that initial work. So it was a great job being the editor of the MJA. And I'd highly recommend it for those who are interested in academic careers, because that's a great way to spend some time when you're more senior in your career. So yeah, I think that's something that's just terrific. As for teaching, I think we have an obligation as doctors, as physicians, as academics, even if you're not an academic, you have an obligation to pass on knowledge to the next generation. And it's a privilege to do this as well. And I love teaching the medical students. They are wonderful, really bright, really interesting, lots of great questions. And it's just lovely to see them progress through their careers. So yeah, I think it's a great privilege to do that. 
And I wanted to also circle back to your other roles. You mentioned having a family, so being a father, and then also owning pets like horses and dogs. <laughs> are your children thinking or are becoming doctors or already are doctors? Well, I don't have any children who are doctors yet, but two of them are thinking about it. Now, I don't know what they'll end up really doing, so I just have to wait and see. But So two of them are living in Sydney now and are a little bit older, and two of them are thinking about their careers and where they're going to go and finishing school, et cetera. So it's a very exciting time. It's lovely to have a family, and I'm very fortunate to, to be able to have that. And I'm very lucky. I've got a very supportive partner, thank goodness, who really helps me enormously. And I think without that, it would have been more difficult to have done a number of the things that I've been able to do. So I recognize how important it is to support your partner, whoever that is, if you're lucky enough to have one, and also hopefully have them support you as you go through your career and life. So yeah, I think I'm very fortunate and that's been incredibly important. How do you balance it all? I don't know. I do my <laughs> that's best. I was going to ask. How do you fit in children with all of those different jobs that you do? <laughs> well, you learn to work hard. You learn to um, make sure that you uh, focus on what you're doing at the time, but try not to let it impinge on other areas that are equally important as best you can. And yeah, I think you learn to be more efficient as well uh, as you go through things, which is helpful. And you've got to obviously pick and choose what you do as well. So if you're in private practice with a very busy private practice, it's very hard to do research and to teach as much and so forth. So for example, one of the things I don't do, I do clinical work, I do research, but I don't have any private practice because there just isn't sufficient time anymore. Although in the past, I've done a little bit of private practice. So I have had that experience as well. So can you take us through, give us an example of what does a typical day look like for you if there's such thing? Like how do you fit all of this? Can you give us an example yeah. so that those who aspire to become yeah. a physician like you and also wear all these different hats can have hope that they can do it all? <laughs> okay. So let me describe two different situations also because they're different and things have changed over my career. So I've had different roles and things have changed. But let me give you an example of how it worked at the Mayo Clinic. So I was lucky enough to have some research grants. So I spent 50% of my time in research and a bit of teaching as well. So half, I could protect the 50%. So when I was at work, for example, every morning I could do research, but the other 50% was clinical work. So you would end up having to see patients, of course, in, in the clinic, in the hospital and so forth. So that was a really nice model actually, because in a sense, it taught me you almost need to partition to be able to do things effectively. If you can't partition, it's very hard to get everything done. So partitioning really matters. And that's what I learned from that experience. It was a good model to work in. A little bit different to Australia. But now what my situation is this. I work multiple jobs. <laughs> I have my academic job, but of course you've got some control over your time. So I do partition there as well. I have my clinical days where I focus on clinical work predominantly and not research. And I do a bit of teaching on those days as well. So it's almost like my week is partitioned now rather than 
every day being the same. In fact, every day is different during the week. I have a different sort of set of jobs each day that I focus on. Right. And that helps. That helps. You sort of feel, well, I, I'm not here to waste my time. I'm here to make sure I get things done. If I don't get things done, I won't get any more research grants. <laughs> I won't have any more research money. And that's a disaster. And all these people who now depend on me, and there's a number of them in the research group, they'll lose their job. So I feel very committed to looking after them and obviously succeeding as best I can. So that's how I do it. So for example, uh, you know, a Tuesday and a Thursday for me are my clinical days. I'll do a clinic in the morning, an endoscopy list perhaps, do some teaching, go to some of the meetings that are on, and that will be a lovely way to spend a couple of days or, yeah. And then the other days, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays are more research-focused where I focus in the lab or writing grants or writing papers or, or whatever. I have to do some work on the weekends, but I also partition there. I have at least one day a week off, sometimes more, because I think it's important. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure our listeners have picked up a couple of things and will be able to apply it to their careers. So we're going to switch things up a bit. And if we can play a bit of a imaginary game in an alternate reality where you worked in something completely unrelated to healthcare, what would you do? There are two careers I would have thought about. Marine biology. I love scuba diving. I love biology. It would have been really interesting to be a marine biologist. I'm not sure how that would have gone. I probably would have been an academic if I'd done that, but I would have thought that would be a pretty exciting, interesting, stimulating career if you're lucky enough to be able to um, get through your PhD and obviously acquire a position. So that would have been a great career. But the other career is completely different. I would have been a historian. Oh, I'm fascinated by history. I read a lot of history, actually. And I loved history in school. I studied ancient history as well as some modern history. At uni, I did a little bit of history as well, because when I went through, you were required to do some arts subjects as part of your general exposure, even though you were in med school. So I did history as well as psychology, and cosmology was the other one that I did. And then my third career, if my maths had been good enough, if my maths had been good enough, would have been as a physicist. I would have wanted to do cosmology. But you have to have terrific mathematics. And I recognize that wasn't going to be me. Fair enough. And so I guess we're really lucky that you chose medicine instead. I Otherwise, your kind. textbook never would have come about. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all the questions I have for you today. Did you have any other final sort of pearl of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I just want to say that I think for those who are studying medicine, for those who are recently graduated from medical school, uh, working in the hospital system, I wish you all the very best and great success. I know it's a hard job being a doctor. It is. It's a tough job. It's stressful. But in my view, it's one of the most rewarding careers you can have. And you can make a real difference individually and in communities, a real difference. And that's something that I think you should be extremely proud of. So best of luck with all of your 
careers going forward. Thank you so much for your time, Prof Tally. That was really inspiring. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 